Good morning. Our reading today is from Esther uh, chapter 2, verses 21 through Esther 3. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. As this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord.
There we go. Good morning. So, uh, I like to be in control. And I know you do too. Uh, the uh, last Sunday, 8.30 service, the one that we uh, live stream, um, last song, um, I'm standing right here just singing my guts out, and uh, my mic was on. And um, <laughs> so I had no control over that, but I did have control, as you should know, that that video will, it can never be found on the internet again. <laughs> it's been wiped from the face of the earth. And, um, you know, we're, this, is a, this is a season where we don't have a lot of control. If we ever thought we had control before, we're reminded over the last seven, eight months that, um, that we have no control um, or little control. But we're also reminded that God is in supreme control. And, um, yeah, amen. Last service um, was so good for my heart um, that we had children's uh, WCC Kids Ministry for the first time in seven months. And uh, before the pandemic, we had about 100, 110, 130 kids that were participated. Um, uh, last service, we had about 30, which is okay because uh, the uh, classroom, classroom size is limited. We're only doing one service instead of two as far as the kiddos. But, and then we had biblical distinctives next door. Uh, John, I think you had 15 people in there, something like that. Just so exciting to be just back to some normal rhythms. And uh, just a quick advertisement for Biblical Distinctives. Um, we have room for a couple more, I think. Um, it's, it's really our gateway to WCC. We don't have membership. Um, we are not opposed to membership. We just don't have it. Uh, so we have this 10-week um, class called Biblical Distinctives. And it's a way just to kind of hear more about um, our heartbeat and some of the um, doctrines that we, that, we, uh, that we stand on. Some of them are primary doctrines, but they're doctrines that might separate us from maybe the church down the street, something like that. So um, would you pray with me? God, you are good, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. And God, thank you. <clears throat> God, I genuinely thank you for this season. Um, God, it's been, um, it's been hard in many ways. Um, God, I know for me, um, you've been gracious to deepen my faith, to purify my hope. Uh, God, you've uh, shown me uh, sinfulness in my heart. And God, I pray that that would be, um, that we would all um, allow you, uh, if I might say that, to, um, to do that um, in this season. I pray that we'd be people of thanksgiving, uh, we'd be people with thankful hearts, um, and um, realizing, God, that, um, that there's nothing that happens in this world that is outside of your, um, your uh, sight, outside of your, uh, what you can hear, and um, God, outside of your control. And so, God, we just want to stand firm on your promises uh, that you are a good and loving God, um, that you um, uh, will not return until you've uh, brought everybody that you choose to bring into the ark of salvation. And in the meantime, God, we want to rest um, not in the, um, 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 the schemes and strategies and things of this world, but we want to rest in our sovereign, good, and loving God. So, um, God, I pray that you would help me just be able to proclaim this, um, this section of Scripture and to teach it in a way that brings you glory and honor and that brings um, encouragement and conviction to those that you brought here today. For your glory, we pray. And God's people said, amen. <clears throat> so if, you're, if you have not been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we're teaching through the book of Esther. It'll be a seven-week sermon series. This is number three. And um, I would encourage you that if, if you're going to be with us for the remainder of the time, and you haven't heard either the first or second or both, um, go back and listen or watch it. Um, even though um, if you 
uh, know Jesus as your Savior, you have God's Spirit. If you have God's Spirit, um, that means that you have the ability uh, to understand the Word. Um, there are still there are some sections in Scripture that are harder to understand than others, and Esther would be that. There's a lot um, uh, there's a lot hidden in Esther that uh, just as we understand some of the uh, hiddenness of it, it just brings it to life, and it's um, and the Lord can just uh, really use it in our lives. Um, this is episode three. I've titled it "An Ancient Conflict." In the book of Ex- Esther is an unfolding account of how a Young, beautiful woman became the king of Persia, queen of Persia, and then she ended up saving her people from genocide. It's unique for several reasons. One is that God never shows up. Um, he is never obvious. His, the name um, God, Yahweh, Elohim, um, is not even mentioned. Uh, the word is never consulted, and no one is ever shown to be praying to him. Yet he's present. Just like today, he's present and he's working all things for good in the, meet, in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances. Chapter 1 we, uh, showed us that the, the greatness and the pomp of Xerxes of, or uh, Hashuerus, whose uh, Xerxes is his, um, is his uh, Greek name, um, at the end of, he, he threw a six-month feast for his government officials to gain their support for invading Greece. Um, He had control over 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India, but he wanted wanted Greece. So he brought in his government officials. He gave them a six-month party, basically, and tried to gain their support. And then we saw that um, at the end of the six months, while he was um, actually drunk, um, he summoned his queen, his wife, Queen Vashti, to come before him and the other drooling, drunk men to uh, show off his prized possession and Vashti denied. Um, she said no to the king. And the king was advised to divorce her, to let her go, to have her um, step down. And what we've learned here is that the, the all-powerful rulers of this world um, do not have ultimate or supreme control. That God is the only one that has ultimate supreme control. So in this book of Esther, we're going to see over and over again that everything in this world is not as it appears, is not as it appears. And then as the a, as a story continued, we were introduced to Esther, a young, beautiful virgin who was swept up in the search for a new queen. Xerxes was no Prince Charming. He was a complete narcissist who had no problem ripping hundreds of young women from their families to serve in his harem and to fulfill his sexual desires. Esther was an orphan. Her parents died when she was young. She was adopted by her cousin, Mordecai. And Mordecai, who was a Jew, um, kept his Jewishness hidden, and he commanded Esther to keep her Jewishness hidden. This book is surprisingly secular. And at times, it's a dark story that seems more like a Netflix series than a Bible story. It's an important story for us because in it, we find God's people living in the midst of a culture that doesn't acknowledge the true God and in many ways opposes His people, you and I, who want to live in obedience to His Word, in obedience to His commands. So in today's text, we're gonna, we're gonna, a few questions are going to come to the forefront. And I would like you to consider these questions, um, not only now, but maybe through the week as you discuss it with your family and your community groups. Number one, can you trust God to be faithful to his promises when he doesn't seem to be present 
and you can't see him working. Number two, how do you respond to a culture that is resistant and in some cases hostile to the things and the people of God? Number three, what are the gods, little g, what are the gods of culture that Christians shouldn't bow down to? And then number four, how do we not bow down to these gods, little g, yet at the same time be the aroma of Christ in this culture? A couple of years ago, some of you might remember that the town of Windsor and the Windsor government had invited um, uh, drag queens to come to the library to read to little innocent children. Um, these were men dressed up like women. When I heard about it, I was mortified that our library and our town government would bow down to the culture and accept this engagement. I started researching who was, a, who was behind it and came up with the name of a young lady who lived in Greeley, who um, not only was she the catalyst for these um, uh, library um, reading sessions by drag queens, she had also started some LBGTQ youth groups um, in northern Colorado, middle school and high school. Um, pretty sad. While researching this, while trying to find out who this young lady was, there were many in the community who were concerned, and there were many who were angry. Many picketed the library, and some wrote hate mail, and she even got uh, some death threats. The answer to this particular problem or other problems like this isn't violence. It isn't hate for those who want us to bow down to their secular way of thinking. And rarely is the answer to do nothing in a sense of bowing down to this type of injustice. Something within me at that time awakened at that moment. And I felt I needed to do something that would represent Christ while at the same time not condoning this evil. My choice was to reach out to this young lady and see if I could meet with her. Not to condone her misguided sin, but to hear her story and hopefully point her to the one who can meet her every need and heal her every pain. I wanted to get close enough to her so that she could smell the aroma of Christ on me rather than smell what she was getting from the haters. You see, in order to smell something, you've got to be what? You've got to be in proximity. This story, I, I didn't want to assimilate into the culture, nor did I want to bow down to the culture. So today, chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 15, the story unfolds in four different scenes. Scene number one, an unrewarded righteousness. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Number two, a spiritual awakening. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Number 3, a fate of a certain people. 3, verses 7 through 11. And then number 4, confusion of all. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. First of all, in verses 21 through 23, an unrewarded righteousness. Five years after Esther was crowned queen, this takes place. Um, after chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 2, verse 21, the gap is five years. There's five years there. We see here that, that 
uh, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, which is known also as the gate to all nations. It's where everyone coming and going to the palace would pass. As we see several times in the book, that Mordecai is oftentimes at the king's gate. He's hanging out there. And we don't know exactly why. He was probably an insider of some sort. He probably, he probably worked inside the citadel, inside the fortress. But we do know that he was an assimilated Jew, that he kept his, his identity as a Jew hidden. He lived like a Persian while his faith in his covenant God was hidden. It came to the knowledge of Mordecai while he was at the gate that two of the king's eunuchs became angry with King Xerxes and were planning to assassinate him. The text doesn't tell us why they were angry or how Mordecai found out about the plot, but we can only imagine why they were angry. Think about a eunuch's plight. These eunuchs were stripped from their home when they were teenagers. They were brought into the fortress or the citadel, and they were castrated, and they were slaves for life, never to have a family. I've got to believe that at some point, they just wanted their freedom. So Mordecai, hearing about this plot, got word to Esther, and Esther informed the king in the name of Mordecai. She let the king know about this plot, and she let the king know that Mordecai is the one that exposed it. The charges were investigated and found to be true, and the eunuchs were hung. And then it says in verse 23, these events were recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the king's diary. He recorded everything that happened, including Mordecai's name. And this diary is going to gather dust for a few chapters. But then it's going to be opened back up, and it's going to vindicate Mordecai. We don't know Mordecai's motivation for protecting the king, for the, the author doesn't give us any hints. Maybe he's just doing his civil duty. Maybe he's protecting his, um, his adopted daughter and cousin Esther. It doesn't appear that he was trying to gain any position or favor with the king, as Mordecai um, wasn't recognized for, for his virtuous deed, and he never complained about it. Let's just assume what seems to be obvious in the text, that he did the right thing and others benefited from his righteous deed. We're going to see God's hidden hand in all of this as this book continues to unfold. We're about to see that the plan to assassinate Xerxes motivated the king to appoint a number two man, a vice king, if you will, a visor, in order to protect the king and his kingdom from future threats. And this appointee was a man with an equal thirst for power and a fragile eagle like the king. This man would cause a spiritual awakening of sorts in Mordecai, or might I say that the Lord would use this man to cause a spiritual awakening in Mordecai. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, a spiritual awakening. We're introduced to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, who the king promoted to give charge over all the government officials. When Xerxes' decree is made that everyone in the kingdom must down before Haman, something inside of Mordecai awakens. He can't bow down to Haman. As a compromised and assimilated Jew in the Persian culture, Haman's rise to power sends Mordecai back to his, to his core identity as a Jew, one of God's chosen people. Names are important, especially in the Old Testament. 
in the same way Mordecai was introduced in chapter 2 as a Jew, son of Kish, a Benjamite, Haman is introduced here as the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. This is significant in the narrative. These, these names probably don't mean anything to you. They didn't mean anything to me. But to the original Jewish hearers of this story, referring to Haman as the Agagite would be similar to someone saying today that Haman was a Nazi, the son of Hitler. You see, Agag was one of the kings of the Amalekites. For over a thousand years, the Amalekites had been enemies of God's people, the Jews. Haman is a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, Israel's bitter enemy in the time of King Saul. And remember, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin and was literally the son of Kish. His dad's name was Kish. And the Lord told Saul back in 1 Samuel 15, 2, he said, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. So what did the Amalekites do to Israel to deserve this type of punishment? It takes us back to Exodus chapter 17, verses 14 and 16, where God told Moses, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation to generation to generation. This is repeated in Deuteronomy 17, 19, when God's people were on the edge of the promised land. It says this in verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you, speaking about Israel. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. If you're on a long hike with your family or a bunch of people, who is it that's typically lagging behind? It's the young. It's the old. It's the weary. It's the lame. He attacked you in the way that you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget this. So Haman is from a line of people who have an ancient conflict with the God of Israel and God's people. The main point here is that Haman is an enemy of the Jewish people by birth. And the enmity between Haman and Mordecai is both tribal, but now it's personal. In verses 2 and 3, we see Haman so intoxicated with the masses as he walks through the crowd. He's intoxicated with everybody bowing down before him. He's so, um, he's so enamored with that that he misses the fact that one man is still standing and not bowing. That's Mordecai. But the text tells us that day after day, the king's servants took notice and asked Mordecai why he transgressed the king's command to bow down and show respect to Haman. They didn't know why. They didn't know why he behaved the way that he did, and we're not told. We're not invited to debate whether Mordecai was obstinate or courageous. However, the narrator does alert us to this ancient conflict between the people of God and their enemies. This is not anti-Semitism. 
anti-Semitism and any other type of hatred for any people group on the grounds of their race or ethnicity is wrong and it's evil. This hostility is an ancient conflict towards God and towards his covenant people. So in verse 4, after Mordecai, after giving Mordecai plenty of chances to show respect and to give a good reason for not bowing down, they tell Haman to see if Mordecai's words would stand or be tolerated. Mordecai the Jew, who passed for a Persian and was deeply assimilated in the Persian culture, had just saved the king. He had nothing to gain from revealing his Jewishness and refusing to bow. He only had things to lose, including his life. And yet, yet something awakened in him. He is a child of the covenant God. He is a Jew. He can't bow down and show respect for someone who is from a long line of haters and killers of God's people, Mordecai's own people. So in verse, in verse 5 and 6, when when Haman the Agagite saw Mordecai not bowing down or showing respect before him at the king's gate, he became furious. And then he didn't just, he wasn't just um, angry at Mordecai like pouring gasoline on a fire. He determined to kill all of the people of Mordecai, all the Jews throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. It wasn't enough for Haman to punish Mordecai alone. It was all-out war against God's people. And that's how evil works. Haman, in retribution, convinces the king to put out an order that will meet genocide for all the Jews in the entire known world. And it's here in verses 7 through 11 that we see a fate for a certain people. In verse 7, having decided that he would pursue the destruction of Jews, Haman consults the gods, his gods, little g, by casting pur, P-U-R, which comes from the ancient Akkadian word for fate. And we don't know exactly how this worked, but he would have rolled the dice again and again, day after day, seeking a particular answer to determine the best day for the genocide to wipe out the Jews. And after rolling the dice day after day, it pointed to the 12th month for this extermination, the furthest month away on the calendar. His plan was going, his plan was going to have to wait to be executed. It'd be some 11 months before the Jews would be wiped from the planet. It's important to remember, according to Proverbs 16.33, that even though the lot is cast and the date for extermination is set. It's every decision is from the Lord. That our God is a Lord who rules over chance, as we're going to see over and over again. Verse 8, once the date was set, Haman now makes the case to Xerxes for the Jews to be snuffed out. And in making his case, he uses some truth, he uses some lies, and then he finishes it off with a bribe. Haman spoke the truth to the king in saying that there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom. There is indeed a certain people that were scattered. And these were God's covenant people. These were the Jewish people. And they were in all 127 provinces. And they were faithful citizens engaging in the work of the city to make it better. Notice how Haman refers to the Jewish people. He doesn't. 
He calls them a certain people. There is a certain people. He doesn't name them specifically. And it's, it's always easier to hate people if they remain unnamed people in your mind. He omits the name of the people in order to keep the king from thinking in terms of specific people. The king probably knows good Jews that are living in Susa. But there's a certain people, Haman says. Haman also spoke the truth in saying that their laws, the, the, the Jews' laws, the certain people's laws, are different from those of every other people. Yes, that's true. Our laws, God's people's laws, then and today have a distinct set of, uh, have a, we have distinct laws that inform our values and our ethics and our morality. And then Haman tells a half-truth in stating that the Jews don't keep the king's laws so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. That's false on one hand. Um, Esther obeyed the king's law and came into the harem. And as far as we can tell, Mordecai is beyond an upstanding citizen in keeping the laws. However, it is true that the Jews won't obey the law of the land. They won't obey the king's law when it supersedes or contradicts God's law. And that's a truth you can take to the bank. If there's, if, is there ever a time to disobey, disobey the government? It's when they contradict or supersede God's law. Haman makes a case that these certain unnamed people are a liability. He says it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Everything in this empire is about power and comfort. And if someone or something interferes or threatens with the king's economy, his power, his control, and his comfort, the king's reaction was to hang him, get rid of him. Haman's got the king's attention. The king's leaning in and listening and being swayed. And Haman is setting up for his closing argument to a king who's driven by a thirst for comfort, control, and wealth. So in verses 9 and 10, in order to make the proposal even more resistible, Haman bribes the king with 10,000 talents, 300 tons of silver, the equivalent of seven months of taxes throughout the entire 127 provinces. I could see the king, boom, putting down the gavel and said, done, deal closed. The, key, the king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the author emphasizes that Haman is an enemy of the Jews. And he now has the king's full authority to act in his stead. He has full signing authority and equal power to the king. And I just, this quote came to mind as I was reading this. It's just a good reminder that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In verse 11, the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Xerxes sounds like he's rejecting the money here. But later in the story, in chapter 4, and I think again in 8, we discover that the king is still intending to be paid. 
Xerxes' statement is more like is more um, him being polite, not a real rejection of it. It's like saying, oh, you don't really have to pay me the money. Just make sure you kill the people. And then finally in verses 12 through 15, there's confusion on the streets. Haman wastes no time laying down the edict with instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. Again, this was an irreversible edict, and the people knew it. At that very day, the moment that the ring was put on and that he sealed the edict, it says a copy of the document was sent out by couriers on the very day of the edict, the 13th day of the first month. This is important. It called for total annihilation of the Jewish people and the plundering of their goods 11 months from this date, on the 13th day of the 12th month. Basically, what the decree is saying is that all of Persia should be ready for this day. If you were a good Persian, if you were a greedy one, you should be ready to identify, attack, and kill every Jew. And as a reward, you can go into their home and you can take their stuff. So if you can imagine that these, are, um, that, that this, these, these aren't the soldiers or, um, or the military, um, this is an edict to all people, for all people who are not Jew to kill Jew, your next door neighbor, your coworker. For one day it would be open season on Jews. And then the story ends in verse 15 with a dark contrast. Xerxes and Haman having casually determined the extermination of an entire people group, sat down and had a drink. But as a decree was issued out of the citadel on the 13th day of the first month, all of the city, all of the city, both Jew and Persian, were in confusion, the text decreed. Even to them, the, de the decree seemed crazy. How can I do that? How can... How can this de decree come out? The Jews were thinking, aren't we God's people? The Persians had to be thinking, how can I kill my friends? But there's something even deeper here. And most, most of us wouldn't notice it. Again, I didn't notice it. But the Jewish readers of this story would be hit with the irony of it all. The 13th day of the first month, the decree for the destruction of the Jews went out on the day before Passover, on Passover Eve. On Passover Eve, a decree goes out for the destruction of the Jews. I want you just to let that sink in to your heart and your mind just for a moment. It was a day before the Passover that the decree went out. The Passover was a celebration that commemorated God's purchasing His people out of Egypt. It commemorated their great redemption and deliverance from slavery. It commemorated God's deliverance from another world superpower, that of the Egyptians. This news decreeing open season on the Jewish people, on God's people, would have gone out in the midst of their preparation for Passover. It would, have, it, would, it would have struck them with terror and dread. For the very next day, they would have to wake up, get dressed, prepare for the meal, and remember their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. 
The celebration that was to be a time of joy and remembrance would have a dark cloud over it. And as they sat down on the Passover to eat the meal, they would be forced to ask a question in their hearts, if not out loud. Can we trust God to be faithful to His promises when He doesn't seem to be present and when we can't see Him working? You see, in the book of Esther, the conflict with and the hostility towards God's people is ancient. It goes back to the time of Cain and Abel. There's a constant battle between light and darkness. And even when our backs are against the wall and God seems hidden, even if things don't go our way, He's working. It seems to me that the more fundamental groundwork that we need to do, must, we, we must do some groundwork before we can talk about surviving conflicts and storms. The inevitable conflicts and storms of life. We need to return to the question of what it means to be a Christian in the midst of our current culture and what the shape of our public witness should be. We are most assuredly um, like the Jews living in Persia. We're a people in exile. This is not our real home. And while the church faces growing opposition, we need to pray for awakening and renewal in our hearts, in your heart, and in my heart. We need to to embrace the discomfort and maybe even the danger of identifying as God's people and pray that our cultural presence... Our presence in the culture is filled with the aroma of Christ. This, I believe, is a constructive way forward in the dark days to come. In spite of pressures to conform our doctrine to a new set of morals, (coughs) in spite of a climate that increasingly scoffs at the notion of the supernatural, in spite of 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 the outright hostility from those who think that Christianity is a religion of bigoted homophobes, In spite of whatever challenges may come, we resist the temptation to fight power with power, and we resist the temptation to run. Whatever the culture thinks about us, we probably deserve that. Here's what we need to do. We need to stay in our towns. We need to stay in our world. We need to be in public view, and we need to be faithfully present. And we don't love our culture well by withdrawing, and we don't love it well by doing and doing nothing. We also don't love them well if we waste our lives with political arguments about who has victimized whom. There, no doubt, there needs to be legal battles. There needs to be a fight for religious liberty. There needs to be freedom of expression. Praise God we live in a country that has those things. But far more important, there's a need for the faithful witness and faithful work of Christians in the culture putting ourselves at risk for the sake of others and working in ways both great and small to make our towns more peaceful and to help our community flourish while proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you in this season to ask these questions. 
Can you trust God to be faithful to his promises when he doesn't seem to be present and you can't see him working? How do you respond to a culture that is resistant and in some cases hostile to the things and people of God? How do we respond? And number three, what are the God's little g of culture that we shouldn't bow down to? Because there's a bunch of them. And then how do we not bow down to these little g gods and at the same time engage the culture so that they can smell the aroma of Christ on us? Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you. God, we thank you that, um, that we see your work um, um, so obviously on every page of Scripture. And God, I think that we can look back, and even though you seemed absent to the people in a particular time, we can look back and we can see your hand of providence completing your work. And God, we know that, um, that, we, that we don't depend upon elections and uh, officials and good economies and um, um, mask mandates being lifted. And um, we don't depend on anything that is out of our control. God, we depend upon you. We just ask, God, that you would just deepen our faith, that you would purify our hope, in this season, God, would you expose um, our unbelief, my unbelief, and that, uh, Lord, we'll, we'll fight to trust you. And, uh, God, would you help us? Would you give us the courage to, um, to um, stand up, if I might, um, and not bow down to the little gods of this culture? But at the same time, would you help us engage the culture? in a way that you would have, Lord Jesus, so that we can be the aroma of Christ to a culture that um, needs you, needs you more than it needs anything here that's temporary. And we need you. We thank you that you're faithful, even when we're not. We thank you that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us, and that your promises are true and right and good. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.